0: Well, this morning we're back into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm glad to be back able to teach again. I have a bit more energy now than I had over the last few weeks. Praise the Lord for that. I'm very thankful. This morning we're going to consider a well-known teaching of our Lord Jesus that's often referred to as the Golden Rule. And in the process, we're going to see what's truly unique about it. I'd like to begin reading in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and then I'll read through verse 12, which is our text for today. Our Lord Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look? A plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in the context we have, uh, one of the ways we love our brother, we help our brother, we help our brother or sister in the Lord when they're struggling with sin. But we do it with humility, right? Recognizing that we too are sinners saved by grace. And then Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And we saw as we studied that that sometimes, no matter how humbly and wisely and lovingly we seek to confront a sin, uh, sometimes it doesn't go well. And sometimes people even turn out not to be true believers. And so we tied that in with other teachings of Jesus to demonstrate that when people refuse correction and they refuse to repent, they should be treated as unbelievers. And then, uh, anticipating that we will all uh, struggle with this and that when we need to depend upon God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to do this at all, he teaches us about prayer. He says, ask and it will be given to you. And in the context, one of the things you're going to want to be asking for, right, is the humility and grace you need to fulfill the commands he's just talked about. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And we saw that there he meant to keep on uh, asking and seeking and knocking, that he wants us to have a habit of constantly going to God with our prayers For everyone, he says, who asks, receives, and who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. And we saw in the context of the sermon and Jesus' teaching here, as well as that of the apostles, the things we're asking for are, of course, in accordance with God's will. There, for his kingdom to come, for example, as he taught us to pray earlier in in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, the blessings that he talked about, therefore... uh, the sincerity of heart that he's taught that we should have, seeking to be genuinely righteous and not hypocritical. Therefore, the wisdom and love we need to help our brothers and sisters when they struggle. There, it's for God's grace to overcome anxiety and worry and, and things like that, uh, that we might better glorify him, right, and shine his lights in the world. These are the kinds of things he had in mind when he said this. So if you're praying for a great you know, a brand new multi million dollar home, he might say no to that, depending on what you're gonna use it for, I suppose. But he goes on to say or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now, he's assuming we're asking for things we ought to ask for, our needs, as he taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount for our daily bread, for example. And our loving Heavenly Father will, of course, meet our needs because he loves us. If you then, being evil, he says in verse 11, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him, assuming then we're asking for good things once again, Right? And then he has a therefore in verse 12, which somehow ties what he's going to say into what he's just said. It somehow results from that. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We're going to get into that more, but I want to focus on the therefore before you pray and dive into the verse. What does it have to do with what precedes? Well, he's just talked about how our Heavenly Father loves to give good things to us and do good for us. And what he's saying then in verse 12, when he says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them also. We want men to do good to us, do we not? Well, he's saying, You be the kind of person who's like your Heavenly Father that I've just spoken about. You do good to them. You do good to them. You be like your Heavenly Father, in other words. seeking to to do good for other people. And I think that's important because as we seek to be those who honor our Heavenly Father by being like him and doing good for others, we'll be praying for all the right things. (laughs) And that's what he's been talking about in the context as well. And we'll be faithful to help our brothers and sisters when they struggle as well. We'll see how that ties in some more as we look through the verse, but I'll uh, pray first after this bit of introduction and getting our minds back into the text and the flow of the text. uh, Let's ask for God's help in understanding this very important verse. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. The most wonderful thing you've done for us, aside from creating us, of course, is saving us from our sins through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. For all of those here who know you, I know I can say on their behalf, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving us, for giving us your son Jesus, for granting us the presence of your Holy Spirit, for enabling us to see and enter the kingdom. And so we pray now that you would give us more of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask for a good thing, knowing that you will give it. We ask that you'll help us to understand correctly what our Lord Jesus intended here. And we know you'll answer by giving us the good we ask for. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are advocates of well, what they call religious tolerance all over the place these days. I think that Religious tolerance, that I'll put in quotes there, scare quotes, if you will, uh, might be more accurately termed religious relativism or religious pluralism because that's what most people who speak of religious tolerance really mean. They really mean that all religions are basically the same. You hear them say that. Um, They really mean that there's no one true religion because there's no one truth, the only absolute truth they say nonsensically and oxymoronically is that there is no absolute truth. (laughs) Um, And often cited in these discussions of religious pluralism or relativism or so-called religious tolerance is the golden rule. They like to cite it as an example of how all religions are basically the same. And basically teach the same thing. Now, anybody who really has studied anything about world religions knows that that is completely untrue. There's, Christianity is, for starters, being an exclusive religion, says that all other religions are false. Uh, That means it can't be teaching the same thing, Right. So, but a lot of people like to say that in this day and age, and they say it in ignorance because they have no clue what these religions really teach, or they highlight certain things that appear to be similar so that they can then act like or get people to believe that all religions are basically saying the same thing, when in fact they are not. In fact, most of them are diametrically opposed to one another. So if you run into anyone who says to you, well, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and Zoroastrianism and Judaism and Islam, they all really basically teach the same thing. You know right away one of two things about that person. Either that person is completely ignorant of those religions, or that person is lying to you deliberately. But at any rate, the golden rule gets to be one of the chief exhibits of many of these people. And so I'm going to go through and talk about that today because I think a closer examination of the actual teachings, even about this teaching that is so similar, it really is similar, this one teaching, we're going to see it's not so similar as they, they think it is. In a really important manner, we're going to see how Jesus' teaching is actually quite unique based as it is in God's previous revelation. We're going to consider an assortment of examples in order to see what I mean, beginning with ancient Egyptian philosophy. In a, in a, in a book tiled, entitled The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant in Ancient Egyptian Writing, we read this, Do for one who may do for you, that you may cause him thus to do, What's that mean? Do for one who may do for you that you may cause him thus to do. What's that saying? If you want other people to do good things for you, try to do good things for you, them to get them to do good things for you. Notice that the assumed motive for treating another person well is simply to get them to do good things for you. It is basically teaching selfishness as a virtue. But Jesus would never countenance such a view, which understands other people as simply means to one's own ends, as existing to be used to get what one wants. Instead, Jesus contis- uh, consistently excuse me, teaches that we should treat others well. We should do good for them, simply because it's the right thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. It's the way in which we're we're like our Heavenly Father. And that's whether or not we ever receive good treatment in return. This is because our ultimate motive is to let our light so shine as to glorify our Father in Heaven as Jesus had said back earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 16, we're supposed to let others see our good works so that they might also glorify our Father in heaven. So our, our motivation when we do good isn't simply to try to manipulate other people to do good things for us. Our motivation when we do good is to bring glory to our Father, our Heavenly Father, to be like him, To show a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father, to a lost and dying world, so that they might come to know him too. And we don't care if they respond with good back to us or not, because we care about what's best for them, not what we can get out of it. That should be our motivation, according to the teaching of Christ. And that's nothing like, however much they say, look, at this principle of reciprocity, that this ancient Egyptian teaching has. It's very similar to the principle of reciprocity taught by Jesus. Well, not really, not when you stop to think about it. It's nothing like what Jesus was talking about. The motivations are entirely different, and it's also stated negatively, in a way. This principle of reciprocity is is held also in Zoroastrianism, and it's basically the same. It says this, That nature alone is good, which refrains from doing unto another whatsoever is not good for itself. So you're going to refrain from doing things to other people that you don't want done to you. If you don't want to be hurt by others, try not to hurt others, and that'll help. They won't then reciprocate with bad things took great wisdom to figure that out, didn't it? It's amazing that these ancient religions and philosophers ever came across that notion. Uh, it's hard to imagine how so many different people in the world could have fought that one up, right? Uh, Sarcasm oozing on purpose, right? Confucianism transmits the principle in the form of a conversation with Confucius. There's a guy named Sekung, and he asked, is there one word that can serve as a principle of conduct for life? And Confucius replied, it "Is the word shu, reciprocity. Do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. Same basic idea. From Hinduism, we find this, quote, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. From Buddhism, we find the same idea in very similar wording, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. From ancient Greek philosophy, philosophy, we find that Socrates said this, do not do to others that which would anger you if others did it to you. Getting closer to our own religious heritage with respect to ancient Judaism, John Stott, I think, correctly cites Rabbi Hillel on the matter when he writes this. In the Old Testament Apocrypha, we find, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And this, it seems, is what the famous Rabbi Hillel quoted in 20, around 20 B.C. Some people date it to 20 A.D. Uh, Some disagreements about some dating here. But at any rate... uh, It's what the famous Rabbi Hillel quoted in 20 B.C. when asked why a would-be proselyte by, excuse me, a would-be proselyte to teach him the whole law while standing on one leg. And there are different versions of this story. His rival, Rabbi Shammai, had been unable or unwilling to answer and had driven the inquirer away, but Rabbi Hillel said this, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. Now, what he said there isn't much different from what we heard from any of these other religions or philosophies, right? And notice that in each of these cases that I've cited for you, ranging from ancient Egyptian philosophy to ancient Judaism, the principle of moral reciprocity is stated negatively in each case. That is, that we should avoid doing the things we do not want to be done to us. Even the Jewish teachers, as represented by Hillel, one of their most famous rabbis, taught the same negative principle. But I don't think we should be surprised that so many religions have stated such a principle of of reciprocity, should we, as I've already alluded to. I mean, how many of us have parents, for example, have said something at one time or another to one of our children such as, if you don't want your brother to hit you, maybe you shouldn't hit him. All you have to do to come up with this principle is be a parent, you know, of a three- and four-year-old or something, right? It's a pretty obvious idea if you stop to think about it, but that's also stated negatively. However, as we'll see in the passage before us this morning, our Lord Jesus' teaching was actually quite different, for he taught a positive principle, He said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. He didn't say avoid doing bad to others to try to get them not to do bad to you. He said, whatever good, he has good in mind that you'd want other people to do for you, go about doing that for them. There's a big difference between avoiding doing bad things to people and actively seeking to do good things for them. There's all the difference in the world between those two perspectives. And all you have to do is think about that for about 30 seconds to see it. Jesus is not like all these other religions in his teaching. He disagrees with them and the way they state this. Yet, even stated in this uniquely positive manner, Jesus wasn't really saying something that the Jewish leaders... Shouldn't have already known, was he? After all, isn't this essentially just another way of stating what the law taught? Already. When it said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same idea, stated differently. Let's go back and look at that teaching, and I think you'll see how Jesus probably has that teaching in mind from the Old Testament, particularly given the context we've just read this morning in which he brings up this principle. We're going to go back to Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, which is the classic text where the command to love your neighbor is given to us. The greatest commandment, of course, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And our Lord Jesus said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was quoting this text. And I think he's alluding to it here with the golden rule, just stating it differently. Notice what it says in Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 17. And observe the connection to the context that may be there, in which Jesus gives this golden rule, as they call it, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What was he talking about in the beginning of chapter 7? Just a few, just a paragraph before giving this principle. He was talking about confronting a brother, right, who's got a speck in his eye, which is talking about a fault of some kind, a sin of some kind, and doing it with love and humility. Because that's the way you love your brother. Where would he have gotten that notion? Well, it's not a new idea. Here it is in Leviticus. And a lot of people like to quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but they don't quote this context when they do it because most people find it very uncomfortable. They don't want to do this. And the people who do want to do it frequently want to do it with the wrong motivations, which is why Jesus is so Um, focused on not being hypocritical and being humble he goes on to say you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the uh, children of your people when they are sinning you're not going to bear grudge against them but he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord that's the divine name or I am Yahweh that's who's telling us this now, in that context, when we read that Old Testament passage, it's not surprising, once again, that Jesus should have a similar thought in mind when teaching about confronting sin in a brother, as we saw in verses 1 through 5. It's almost as though he has this Leviticus text in the back of his mind when he's teaching. But notice that the standard is to love your neighbor as yourself. Surely each one of us would not want others simply to avoid doing bad things to us, as this principle was negatively stated so many times through the centuries, but would instead want them to do good things for us. The people who love you in your life, do you expect them to just going around trying hard not to do bad things to you? Or do you hope that they'll do good things for you? (laughs) Isn't it the way you, they really, you really know that they love you? That they want good for you and they actively seek it? That's what Jesus apparently fought, and rightly so because he's the one who gave this law, this commandment. He's the Yahweh who was speaking you shall, when he said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's just repeating himself here. Hillel's teaching, as we saw, which was well-known among the Jews in Jesus' day, uh, minimized this requirement to love one's neighbor as oneself with the negative statement, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Whereas Jesus brings out the full force of this love by making the positive statement, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. So, just as Jesus has done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, here also, our Lord Jesus is confronting a common Pharisaic attitude in teaching which minimized the requirements of the law. And he's countered it with his own very clear presentation of the very Old Testament teaching that they had been distorting. Guys like Hillel were distorting the teaching of the Old Testament when he said, just avoid doing bad things to others if they don't want to do bad, you don't want them do bad things to you. That's not the intention of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others what you would want them to do to you is. And, of course, there are examples of how Jesus has done this already in the Sermon on the Mount, how he's countered what they're teaching. Uh, so that we're not surprised that he's doing it here, right? Right? Uh, Back in chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he confronted their teaching against murder while they failed to properly challenge the anger of the heart that leads to murder. Then he went on to confront, in verses 27 and 28, their teaching against adultery while they failed to challenge the adultery of the heart. These ways they minimized the teaching of the law. When we went through those teachings, we saw that what Jesus was saying when he focused on the heart Wasn't new. That was in the Old Testament. They were just avoiding it. Again, to try to minimize the demands of the law so they could seem like they were keeping it and pat themselves on the back. Be good Pharisees. Later on in chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus confronted their attempt to distort the teaching to love others by requiring love for those it's easiest to love while allowing you to hate your enemies. They said, "You know, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's not what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself either in the context in which it was given in Leviticus. But all these attempts to minimize the demands of genuine righteousness will not alter the fact that God's judgment will require just that, a genuine righteousness that comes from the heart and is not merely focused on outward conformity a set of comparatively easily kept requirements. Well, it's much easier to go around avoiding doing bad things to people than it is to go around trying to find ways to do them good. Remember again what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know that that righteousness that gets us into the kingdom of heaven, that genuine righteousness isn't our own, is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. Remember, we took time to look at the teaching of Christ and his apostles about the idea of imputed righteousness, that our righteousness isn't our own. The righteousness by which we are acquitted before God and pronounced righteous is not our own. It's the righteousness of Christ all teaches that has been reckoned as our own our sin was put on him on the cross and he suffered the punishment for us and then his righteousness was reckoned to us as our own and so when God looks at us he says righteous he declares us righteous based on this imputed righteousness of Christ we're clothed with his righteousness and that is why we stand. And of course, that, that judgment comes in the future. But we get to know the verdict now, those of us who trust Christ. We get to know now what that verdict will be. When we stand before the Lord on judgment day, all of us who know Christ will hear the Lord pronounce us righteous and welcome us into the kingdom. We know that for a fact. Because Christ's righteousness has been granted to us, is that we're our own. And we spend all of our lives trying to become what we've been declared to be. And that's called sanctification. The other doctrine is justification, how we're justified. Sanctification is how we spend the rest of our lives with the Holy Spirit creating us, making us to be what we've been declared to be. And that is finished when we're glorified. It's called glorification in the resurrection. And we're finally purified completely. And we have new resurrection bodies. And we'll live forever with our Father in a new heavens and a new earth. Kind of got off track a little bit there. But it's hard not to focus on that when I see Jesus' statement about righteousness. He is our righteousness. The one who said these things is our righteousness. He is the one who lived everything he's teaching here perfectly in our behalf. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He lived a perfectly righteous life in our place so that he could die for our sins in our place. And so that his righteousness could become ours in that happy exchange, as Martin Luther called it, where he took all our sin, gave us all his righteousness. What a Blessed Savior we have. Anyway, I hope you didn't mind that rabbit trail. That wasn't in my notes, but I couldn't, hard, I couldn't stop myself from saying it. <clears throat> Back to the text. I would say, as a matter of fact, the lesson standard of Hillel, in particular, will ultimately help no one in the Day of Judgment. D.A. Carson makes the same uh, observation in his commentary on Matthew when he writes with regarding to the teaching of Hillel in his negative statement of this principle. He writes this, Apparently only Jesus phrased the rule positively. Thus stated, it is certainly more telling than its negative counterpart, i.e. that of Hillel, for it speaks against sins of omission as well as sins of commission. The goats, in chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, would be acquitted under the negative form of the rule, but not under the form attributed to Jesus. Now, Carson has rightly alluded to Jesus' teaching on the final judgment, so we're going to take a look at that for a moment. And see this point a little more clearly. Uh, He was alluding to the parable of the sheep and the goats when he spoke of the goats, and that's later on in chapter 25 of Matthew we're going to pick up the text where Jesus is addressing the goats. Uh, we're told that the sheep and the goats are going to be gathered, and Jesus is going to separate the sheep and the goats. The sheep are believers, and the goats are unbelievers. But some of them are surprised to find out that they're not considered to be believers, apparently. We'll get to an example of that later in Matthew chapter 7 as well, in, in what I call maybe the scariest verse in all of the Bible. But in, in Matthew 25, I'll pick up in verse 31 where Jesus says this, Then he will say to those on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Now, these are all good things that ought to have been done, but that weren't done. They were following Hillel's command to the letter. Don't do bad things to others that you don't want them to do to you. That wouldn't have helped them here. Because Jesus expected them, when they saw brothers hurting, to do good to them, not just to avoid doing bad. Again, he says. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and or in prison and did not minister to you? Many will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, then in the context he's talking about his brethren, believers, Because if you look through the Gospels, Jesus counts us as brethren, only believers. And he says, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Because the righteous will have done these good things for their brothers. Because they will have had a genuine righteousness, and they will have sought to do as Jesus taught. To do unto others what you would have them do unto you. If you were naked, you'd want clothes. If you were hungry, you'd want food. If you were in prison, you'd want somebody to visit you. So you didn't starve to death or die of some disease that could have been helped. Hell out! They'd have gotten off, but Hillel's... Standard, not on Jesus. Big difference, big difference between Jesus' golden rule and these other so-called golden rules, isn't there? Jesus not only expects us, obviously, not just to avoid doing what we know is sinful, but to actively go about doing what we know is right and good and thus demonstrating the love of our Heavenly Father. The Apostle James would later reflect the same teaching in his epistle when he wrote this in James 4.17, Therefore, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Hillel was letting them get away with sin. (laughs) They might have often known what is good to do and not done it under his standard, but along with our Lord Jesus, his brother James said, No, that that would be sin, to, to know good and not do it. And Jesus is basically saying the same thing. He's saying to him who knows to do good for others as he would want others to do for him and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. Same idea. And this is no wonder why he goes on to say this in the last part of the verse, for this is the law and the prophet's. Remember, Hillel said, that's the whole law. Just whatever you'd find hurtful or hateful to you, just don't do that to other people. Jesus saying, no, no, (laughs) that's not the whole law. It's wrong. For this is the law and the prophets. What he just said. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you or what you would want others to do for you, do for them. It's almost as though Jesus had Hillel's words in mind, Though we can't be sure of that. He certainly would have known about his teaching. John Stott is again helpful when he writes this. All we have to do is use our imagination, put ourselves in other person's shoes and ask, well, or how would I like to be treated in that situation? As Bishop Ryle wrote, it settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. Just this one principle. I think he's right. Indeed, it is a principle of such wide application that Jesus could add, for this is the law and the prophets. That is, whoever directs his conduct towards others according to how he would like others to direct theirs towards him has fulfilled the law and the prophets, at least in the matter of neighbor love, which is what Jesus had in mind, right? But I think there's another reason that Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. That's one big reason, but there's another one, and that is... Because this principle brings to culmination a theme he began to discuss way back earlier in the sermon. And that's why I went back earlier in the sermon, repeatedly, to show you how what Jesus says here is tying in to what he's been doing. But these words here, mentioning the law and the prophets, ties it in very closely to what began this discussion. He gave the Beatitudes and talked about persecution, and then he launched into a discussion that began back in... Chapter 5, verse 17, where he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. And what's he saying here? Actually, what I'm telling you here fulfills the law and the prophets. Everything I've been saying up to this point, culminating in this principle, is what the law and the prophets are all about. How can I be coming to destroy them, which is the accusation he was going to receive from the hypocritical Pharisees because he was destroying their traditions, which they equated with the law and the prophets. He's saying, how how can I be coming to destroy the law and the prophets when everything I've been teaching you fulfills everything that the law and the prophets are about? See, he's making a very important point alluding back to this. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he's demonstrated that throughout the sermon, how he's fulfilling it in many ways. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter, he says, will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he launches into all those examples, one of which was in his mind clearly in this text this morning, all these examples of how they'd actually distorted the law with their traditions. Like the scribes and Pharisees, don't we all have a tendency to minimize or distort the standard of righteousness found in God's word? Don't we find our own ways of doing that? In fact, doesn't Jesus assume that we'll have the same kinds of struggles throughout this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Isn't that why he warns us about it so much? Isn't that why he teaches us what genuine righteousness will look like and how we can pray to the Father and ask him for the help we need in order to not be like these Pharisees? Remember, there are two groups you're not supposed to be like, the heathen and the, and the hypocrites. How, how can we not be like them and instead have a genuine righteousness? We've got to pray. We've got to go to the Father. We've got to seek divine help because we can't do it in our own strength. And that's why he's had this important focus on prayer. And he's just talked about prayer in verses 7 through 11. That's no coincidence. Anybody who's paid close attention to his teaching and has any humility at all and recognizes that they're a sinner at all will read that and say, I can't do this. All I could do in my own strength is muster up hypocritical and heathen-like righteousness. I can't do this. And then you will have gotten his point and be ready for his teaching to pray. Right? To seek from your father the good things that he's been teaching you that he wants from you. Because he'll, he'll enable you to do them. He'll grant you these good things. It's only through prayer. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through reliance upon His work in us that we have any hope of living out what we've been declared to be in Christ righteous by the grace of God. So, I can't think of any better way to end this teaching than to pray. So let's do that. Holy Father, I really do hope that I've been able to help my fellow believers see how utterly unique our Savior is, how utterly unique our faith is, how unique his teaching is, because it is centered upon your glory. It is centered upon genuinely, selflessly loving others and not simply viewing them. As a means to our own ends, but loving them for your sake, wanting them to have the good that we found in Christ, wanting them to have the same blessings of salvation that we've had through our Savior Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, give us this heart, I pray. Some days we Our heart is where it ought to be, and some days it's not, and that's why every day we need to pray to you. Every day we need the gospel. Every day we need the reminder that we, too, are sinners, saved by grace, and that we exist to show your love to a lost and dying world, to let our light so shine that others will see the good that we're doing for them, And glorify you, our Heavenly Father. That is our desire. Lord, forgive us when we lose sight of that. Because we do. We do every day. And we're sorry. Help us to come praying, asking, seeking, knocking. For the heart that only you can give us. For the good desires that we ought to have that only you can grant for the transformation in our souls that only you can bring about for an increasing daily conforming it to the image of Christ more and more which only you can accomplish in us help us to seek all these things these good things from you and live out what Jesus says loving others as we should for your glory and for our own good. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.